and welcome to Be There with Dali Loudspeakers, a brand new podcast where we talk about what happens behind the music and what makes it amazing. This mini-series of podcasts ties in with a new issue of Dali's magazine about the creative forces behind great music. The magazine is also called Be There. I'm the editor, my name's Andrew Harrison, and you can get a free copy by going to the Dali Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash dali.loudspeakers. Dali are famous for making the finest loudspeakers available, with incredibly detailed sound and presence, all carefully built in Denmark, and it's all born from admiration of music. The podcast and the magazine are here to celebrate the backroom visionaries who turn a great idea into a record that will last forever, and I've got a couple of the contributors with me here today to talk about their stories in the magazine. They're also going to name their own heroes of studio recording, and they're going to choose the best-produced track of all time, says them. We're going to put them all into a Tidal playlist on the Dali Facebook page so you can listen in the highest resolution. So let's meet our guests. Kate Hutchinson writes about music from all over the world. For the New York Times, Songlines Magazine and The Guardian, she DJs on Worldwide FM, and we're lucky to catch her because next month she's off to East Africa to go to the Niege Niege Festival in Uganda and then Nairobi, Tanzania and Malawi. Or at least that's the plan, isn't it, Kate? That is the rough plan. <laughs> Whether that will actually materialise, who knows? Anything could happen. We only need to crowdfund a kind of rescue expedition somehow. <laughs> it's, it sounds like a fantastic tour. Where did your kind of love affair with uh, African music come from? Where did it materialise? It actually came from a group of DJs that materialised into the, uh, the group The Very Best. Mm. Um, they recently did some work with Mumford and Sons and they used to do this night called Sakus in West London and that was the first place where I heard African sounds from across the continent mixed with very contemporary electro and bass and it was ravey and it was really fun and it was very sweaty. Excellent, sounds good. You've written a fantastic piece for there about analogue Africa records which we're going to talk about a little bit later. It is a huge world though, I mean if you're a kind of a newbie, where's the best place to start? I think that the reissue labels like Analog Africa or Ostinato Records are a really good place to start in terms of looking at sort of uh, lost and dusty old sounds that were once legendary in places <laughs> like Somalia or, uh, or Capo Verde and yeah. uh, now have been lost. Fantastic. Well, to balance the slate, we also have the most metal man we could lay our hands on. Joel McIver is the author of the best-selling rock biography, Justice for All, The Truth About Metallica, among many others. He writes for Metal Hammer, Classic Rock and Rolling Stone, and he's the co-author of Spider from Mars, My Life with David Bowie, with Woody Woodmansey of Bowie's first great band. And that's fitting, because in Be There magazine, he interviews Ken Scott, who co-produced Hunky Dory, Ziggy Stardust, Aladdin Sane and Pinups for Bowie. Oh, and uh, apparently Ken Scott also engineered a, a couple of little-known tunes called Hey Jude and Back in the US and mm-hmm. SSR and things like that. Stuff you might have heard of. And welcome to the show, Joel. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you very much. We're going to talk about Ken Scott a bit later, but while we're on Bowie, how, how, what was it like writing with Woody Woodmansey? Uh, Woody's a really good guy, and the way we did it, I've done a few of these things where mm. you, you work with someone on their autobiography, and the way we did it was we went to a pub for about five lunchtimes, long lunchtimes, uh, and I just interviewed him about his life. Yeah. And got all that down in audio files, turned it into a book, and that was basically it with a lot of editing faffing around as well. Did you discover things that surprised you about what, what life as the drummer with the spider from, spiders from Mars is like? Do you know, what we were trying to evoke was the small details of what it's like to, to share a house with David Bowie. Yeah. You know, there are the grand gestures, the gigs, the tours, all that stuff. But what I really wanted to portray was, you know, what happens when you walk downstairs and Bowie's making the tea? Yeah. What's it like when you go to the chip shop with David Bowie? So the, the book is stuffed full of those little funny things. Does would, Bowie you know, do the dishes and things like that? All that stuff. <laughs> can Andy cook? And uh, you can read that answer for yourself in the book. Fantastic. Woody is now touring with Tony Visconti in a supergroup called Holy Holy who do Bowie songs from yeah. the 70s. Have you been to see them? Yeah, I have. They're amazing. Yeah. No, I saw them not long after Bowie died, so obviously oh, right. emotions were high in the crowd and they really deliver those songs amazingly. You, you are yourself a bass player. Did you yeah. jump on stage? Do you know, 
Uh, Tony Visconti's bass parts on The Man Who Sold the World are just insanely difficult, so the answer is no. Some of the later stuff, maybe, but uh, <laughs> not that stuff. If you're going to make great records, it's important to be in the right place at the right time. And it's hard to imagine a better place or a better time than the one Ken Scott found himself in. He was 16 in 1964 when, fed up with school, he decided to write to recording studios. He wrote 10 letters to 10 studios and within nine days he started at AMI in London, which later became Abbey Road. A couple of months later he was working on side two of A Hard Day's Night by the Beatles just like that. Ken Scott went on to work on a frankly ludicrous string of massive records from Lady Madonna and Hey Jude through Bowie's Hunky Dory and Ziggy Stardust and then Supertramp, Lou Reed and the Rolling Stones. And he also worked on the famous Coca-Cola ad, I'd Like to Buy the World a Coke. Mm -hmm. Joel, you interviewed Ken for, for be there. This seems like the kind of thing that could never ever happen again. I can't imagine a set of similar circumstances, no. I mean, you know, the, the stars aligned there. The bands were all ready and primed to explode. He happened to be some kid who was just yeah. looking for a job, sent off a bunch of letters to record companies, and lo and behold, EMI took him up. Um, and all those bands were ready to, to explore the, most cr the, the, the heights of their creativity, so... Right place, right time. Yeah, absolutely. And this was when being a recording engineer and producer was sort of mutating from being a guy with a clipboard and a white coat into a guy who's not wearing a tie. He's one of the band kind of thing. He was there through that, kind of alongside George Martin as well, wasn't he? Yeah, it's bizarre. They literally wore white coats in the studio. As, as if it were a science lab. It's not very rock and roll, is it? No, but the job of a producer was to make sure the needles go in, didn't go into the red, and yeah. that was it. Yeah, wasn't essentially. It? Yeah. So what, what did Ken Scott uh, sort of do that hadn't been done before? Because he's in this amazingly fecund mm. period. Mm -hmm. what, did, what did he pull off that hadn't been pulled off before? Well, believe it or not, he sat back and let the creative work their magic. Mm. You know, there had been a whole tradition of producers, these sort of stiff upper lipped chaps in suits who were very, very certain that they knew what was right and that, that the creative artist did not. Um, Ken's genius was to, was to allow that talent to flourish. Yeah. He said specifically in the piece I wrote for you um, that he can't abide the kind of producer who's a sort of dictator in the studio and says, this is what you must do, this is the way it's always done. So his uh, sort of uh, desire to be creative and experimental matched those of the bands themselves, and that, I think, is his innovation. What did he tell you about the sort of personalities of the Beatles? Because you're in, basically, yeah. the crucible of a whole new kind of music. Yeah. I mean, what I, as I was saying to you before about Bowie making the tea, what you really <laughs> want to hear is the small details, don't you? You don't necessarily yeah. need to know about the big, big stories. So he told me that uh, the Beatles, during that period of time, six months, I think he said, they worked um, together on the White Album, um, they, they had the famous bust-up mm. where uh, Ringo walked out feeling under underappreciated. But what he carefully explained to me for the magazine was that that has subsequently been overinflated. It wasn't this giant bust-up, you know. The band was not going to split. Um, and the very nice detail was that when Ringo was enticed back into the studio, George had decked out one of the rooms with flowers and yeah. a big sign saying, welcome back. So, you know, that's that very George, that, isn't it? I think. Very, you know, I can't imagine John George. doing that, frankly. Yeah, the Bowie work is incredibly interesting, isn't it? I, I mean, yeah. the story is that, like... Ken wanted to move into production and he thought this was a low-risk enterprise. Yeah. Nobody yeah, would yeah. really notice, just give it a go. So he, and, and Bowie wanted to produce and was, was kind of concerned that yeah. he couldn't do it. Yeah. So they just give it a go and the result is Ziggy Stardust, Honky Dory's Honky Dory, pin-ups, you know, this, this string of incredible What a records. run of hits. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Ken did talk about how Bowie was very kind of hands-off and actually seldom listened to the mixes afterwards. Mm -hmm. David found the people who were in his head he didn't have to tell us what to do because we already knew what we wanted. So the idea that this visionary artist... He's just gathering musicians and saying, I'll oh, give it a go, see what you think. And would never do more than a couple of takes. 
So it ties in very much with what Bowie was trying to do. He had multiple talents, as we all know, at this point in his career. He wasn't only planning on being a successful musician. So that meant that his attention was all over the place. And when the band recorded a take, he trusted them to to get it done correctly. So that meant that sometimes they didn't need a second take. Or if there was a mistake, as there famously is in the Gene Genie, Mm. Bowie was happy to let let it stay in just because he was... He wanted the feel to come through. He wanted the ambiance and the big, broad brushstrokes to come through. He wasn't finickety about details. Kate, do you get the uh, the canonization of Bowie? Because he seems to have become now our guiding star for what music ought to be. Yeah, I, but I think it's interesting listening to you talk about his production process uh, to sort of contrast him with Prince, who, right, right. you know, I've always been more of a Prince girl, but he was definitely finickety and he would definitely obsess over certain sounds. And, so, you know, he obviously produced everything himself. Mm. And so that's a really interesting contrast to me, the sort of more free-flowing kind of, you know, yeah. this, this is a sort of snapshot of time that Bo was trying to create rather than this sort of uh, slaving over the sort of, you know, the particular mastering or the particular... But also there's the fact that um, the pace at which things were done in those days. I read somewhere, I can scarcely believe this, that um, Ziggy Stardust and Aladdin Sane were recorded something like six weeks apart yeah, from one another. Yeah, they, they basically occupied the same space of time and the same phase in Bowie's creativity. And now we're sort of well accustomed to... An album takes five years to complete. And the idea <laughs> that these two... You know, one hesitates to say iconic, but you can probably use iconic in this context. They were recorded pretty much at the same time. But I think there's a lot of pressure now on artists to, yeah, to create something that's timeless, that's definitive, and to spend, yes, all this time on it. And it can be very easy. I, I know that um, Tame and Parlour uh, particularly has spoken out mm. about, as a contemporary band, about uh, the sort of hours that he's put into, and he can't stop yeah. uh, finessing stuff. So mm. I, th- I think it's really interesting that, uh, to have this other approach. Joel, you're a metal guy. Um, add so, so metal. So metal. Well, if, if uh, listeners, if you could see uh, Joel's amazing Celtic Frost t-shirt, mm-hmm. you would know exactly where he's coming from. <laughs> this is, Aladdin Sane in particular, is kind of the bridge of Bowie into that world of science fiction metal, isn't it? It yeah. is so loud and so kind of distorted. Oh, yeah. You know, you can argue uh, a straight line between those early albums when he was really being raucous mm. uh, uh, towards the metal that came up in the 80s, you know, a decade later. I think the glam... And the sort of the abandon, the kind of glorious uh, playing with sexual politics and, and so on that Bowie specialised in at that point is what appealed to to the heavy metal team in Los Angeles, specifically in the 80s. I wouldn't say that Bowie was this major influence on the thrash metal scene, you know, or anything like that. But definitely when it came to that sort of perfumed Poppinger look that, you know, <laughs> that, that, that Motley Crue and the rest of them yeah. used, there's no, there's no argument. But it's there, also right? the kind of sort of emotional space of it, isn't it? Because the character that Bowie is playing on these, on these albums mm. is, a, is, a, is a strange and a distant and a troubled individual. And yeah. that's basically emo 30, 40 years <laughs> early. He's not inventing emo, in, you know, in, yeah. in, in the days of power cuts and, right. uh, and the three-day week, that kind of thing. Um, I was rereading the, the, uh, the sleeve notes to Aladdin saying the other day where uh, Ken Scott explained how the harmonica on Watch That Man it wasn't sounding right and they didn't know why. So they stuffed it through an amp and distorted it as if it was a guitar. And you get this kind of incredible dirty sound. I didn't even know there was a harmonica on that track until I played them through the Dali speakers. The, you know, one of the yep. perks of the job. Yeah. Lovely Dali callistas. And it's right there. Yeah. Stuff like crazy. But also, so it's like a science fiction blues element that's been brought into right. it too. Mm-hmm. I've had another great quote about from, uh, from Ken um, talking about, you know, the, the fact that these things were done so quickly and what and the way that Bowie 
you know, every every take was an actual capital P performance. He said, you have to understand that in Bowie's case, every take was a real performance, and mm-hmm. it was astounding. Mm-hmm. In the talks that I give, because he, he does a, a lot of sort of presentations and, and education for young producers, I play the ending of the song Five Years and fade everything, so it's just David and his acoustic guitar, so people can witness that performance. He was bawling his eyes out. I always floor them when I tell them that that would not be accepted at any record company today. Yeah, I mean, uh, talk about committing yourself to your art. Right. Mm. You know. do, do we think we've lost a little bit of something by letting bands take too long in recording? Isn't it better to stick them in somewhere with somebody <laughs> like Ken Scott and give them a day to record Rebel Rebel? That was the point that I was, uh, I was making earlier, is that it was, uh, I think there's a real kind of sense of excitement that's been lost. And if you look at a lot of the sort of contemporary jazz artists, this is what they're doing. You know, Kamazi Washington and his band, they rented out uh, for his last but one album, uh, they rented out uh, a, a studio for a month. Uh, and each of his band members got to make their album within that time. So they had 30 days, they made about eight albums, and it was just like boom, 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 one after the other. Yeah. And you get that, you get that sense of um, camaraderie and that energy, I Thing from listening to uh, it was his album The Epic that he yeah. did that for. You often talk to bands who've, who've been through the kind of giant recording process of you know we're going to book him into a residential studio for three months kind of thing, and then the kind of either they're off the big label or the budget goes and, <laughs> and they have to they're told you've got to go somewhere like Torag Studios and do it cheap and quickly, and they remember that it's exciting to do it like that for all yeah. four of you or five yeah. to be playing at the same time. Do four or five takes and there's your album is much more exciting than spending six months of agonising over the kick drum. Yeah, it's like that sort of uh, Brian Eno uh, sort of, uh, if you set yourself rules, if you set yourself sort of boundaries like crappy basement studio, um, you know, one type of brass instrument or something, and then yeah. maybe maybe you'll come out with something magical in the end. Mm, I had a similar conversation with Bob Geldof once who told me that uh, if you know more than a couple of chords, you end up writing more complex music than you otherwise would have needed to. And that detracts from the quality yeah. of the music, which is certainly a point of view. Yeah. Well, you can read more uh, of Joel's interview with Ken Scott in the new issue of Be There magazine. Just go to the Dali Loudspeakers Facebook page, facebook.com slash dali.loudspeakers, and Dali will send you your own copy. Okay, moving on. As I mentioned at the beginning, Be There is all about the hidden talent behind the music. So we're going to ask today's guests to nominate the heroes of studio recording, the people who make it more amazing than it was when it came in through the studio doors. Kate, you're a devotee of international music and you're a DJ. Who's your studio hero and why? Well, my studio hero has to be Mandy Parnell, who is a mastering engineer, the mastering engineer, uh, at Black Dog Saloon Studios, yes, mm. in Walthamstow, which I went to I went to interview her for The Guardian a couple of years ago. And she is really the sort of... Uh, secret sort of lesser known or lesser celebrated sort of maverick behind how amazing a lot of our favourite albums sound and in particular she worked with Bjork on her last record so specifically with Biophilia Mm -hmm. in making sure that Biophilia sounded incredible when played on all these different mediums so an app on your computer on your phone and she's the person yeah that makes sure that the quality of the sound is there no matter what you're listening to it on. She's done all kinds of things from alternative rock and Aphex Twin and pop and everything hasn't she? And it's kind of, I think mastering is something that, you know, I've been writing about music for 30 plus years and I'm still really not sure what mastering is, but it, it is the magic bit, isn't it? It is the special moment. You have to have very special ears and probably get them insured in order to do what she does. <laughs> so what, do you know other things that she's done recently? So but the Bjork stuff, particularly Utopia recently, I think she did that, didn't she? The, yeah, she yeah. worked on Utopia and um, which obviously had this gorgeous sort of like lush flute sound to it and I think she really created, I think what Mandy does is help and 
an artist create a new world mm. for their sound. Um, and she also does a lot of work with Erase Tapes, so which is a neoclassical label based in East London. And they have Nils Fram and Oliver Arnold. And um, she's done a lot of work with them with kind of really making amazing instrumental music. And she's one of the only female uh, mastering engineers in the country, really. I think there's something like only 6% of people signed up to the Music Producers Guild are indeed female. So she's a real hero. And uh, and the track that I really want to nominate is Arisen My Senses, which is on Bjork's Utopia album. Really beautiful track. Joel McIver, metal expert and actual hands-on bass player. Who's your studio hero? Well, there's a bunch of them, but I'm going to nominate an American bass player called Lee Sklar, who most of us will only have seen in the background of Phil Collins' videos. He's this big bloke with a giant beard. I mean, it's a beard that goes down to his waist. He looks like Gandalf, if that's the reference point that helps. And, uh, you know, the bass player, I, I edit a magazine about bass players, and, you know, quite often they're relegated to being the quiet ones of the band. But really, the bass, for me, has always been the special source, so to speak. And Lee has played on everything. He started out with James Taylor in the late 60s on those Apple records that he did. And he went on to tour with everyone. I mean, everyone. If you Google Lee Sklar, um, you'll see him. And he's this amazing bloke. You can call him up and have a chat. And he's ego-free. Uh, loves talking about his beard because everyone asks him about <laughs> He's the man. And what's the Lee Sklar track that ought to go on our playlist? I'm going to nominate Stratus, uh, the song by Billy Cobham, uh, on which uh, Lee plays an amazing bass part that was subsequently sampled by Massive Attack. It's actually the first thing you hear on Blue Lines. This is do 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 do. After a little bit of ambient, yeah, it is one of the great bass lines. Now, from Suffragette City to Lagos and Addis Ababa with Analog Africa. Some people take their music seriously. Some people even move house to get better acoustics and accommodate their record collection. The great reggae DJ David Rodigan actually had to have his floor reinforced to handle the weight of vinyl. But few people change their career entirely just so they can go record shopping. That was the case with Sammy Ben Redjeb of Analog Africa Records, who our guest Kate Hutchinson interviews in the new issue of Be There. Kate, tell us how Sammy Ben Rajab changed his life because of his music obsession. Well, he's a real character, uh, Sammy, and he... I can't exactly remember, or I don't know how he discovered that his love of African music, but he really went to superb lengths to go and find a lot of this stuff, including. So I think he went to um, to Senegal, where he was he was a diving instructor, and then he loved it so much, and then he was a, he became a DJ in hotels mm. in order to stay there and uh, to find as much music as he can, and then. He was like, how can I, how can I enable myself to travel around Africa cheaply and go on these massive record hunts? And he decided the best way to do that would be to be a, a flight attendant. So he got a job um, at Lufthansa and this was right after 9-11. So A, not many people wanted to be flight <laughs> attendants and B, he managed to, uh, in, uh, to negotiate a deal where he could be part time. <laughs> so he was part time <laughs> flying across Africa and then the rest of the week he was going to various countries and, and, um, and sort of finding what he could find. It's astonishing, isn't it? I love the idea of him sort of getting on playing with his duty free and a huge rattling bag of cassettes from, from <laughs> Africa. Um, explain what, what's actually happening in that, on that label, the Analog Africa label, and that kind, of, that kind of world of music, because it has become the kind of undiscovered treasure trove of mad sounds you can't get anywhere else, isn't it? Yeah, I think the key is that Sammy has a certain style. So there are a lot of reissue labels now. It is kind of the thing. And Africa, the continent, um, as well as the Middle East, is somewhere that's really kind of being uh, mined for as much kind of old stuff as possible. But Sammy has a particular ear for he likes 
old weird dance music and synth music and he's putting out a record in September um, he's reissuing two albums by the Durda band from Somalia and they were uh, one of the biggest bands in the 80s but crucially they, they were sort of blending sort of Michael Jackson funk and James Brown funk and pop Bob Marley reggae um, with sort of uh, sort of the Somalian sort of folkish more folkish sounds and that ge- that gives it a really unique quality and he's looking for that sort of, sort of off-kilter synthy sound that sounds like something you could find in the bottom of a glove box in 1982 in Senegal. Is it a bit risky because he's going to you know kind of places that are not entirely stable sometimes Somalia itself? Yeah I think there is inherent risk perhaps with uh, some of those expeditions but he you know spends a lot of time finding people on the ground I mean Somalia was particularly difficult for him to sort of find people he would let him come uh, and visit because you have to have security so Mm. whoever sort of invites you to come has to also arrange for your security and that means armed guards are going to take you here there and everywhere but um, I get the sense that he sort of relishes in that sort of challenge. Well reading your story I could not help but use the head Headline readers of the Lost Archive because it kind of it is you know an expedition into the unknown. Well, th- there is this sense that um, that th- these kind of reissue labels or a lot of them are presenting African music through a sort of white mm-hmm. lens and they're exoticizing it. And with Analog Africa, the releases have names like the forgotten mystical sound of or the amazing unheard of blah blah blah. But I think that's more to do with Sammy's sense of humour, almost as a sort of um, response against a lot of reissue labels that were cropping up and not doing things ethically mm. and sort of exoticizing things. He actually came up with this uh, compilation from Capo Verde, which is called Space Echo, the mystery behind the cosmic sound of Capo Verde. And he invented this story, <laughs> which was basically that um, all these electronic equipment had washed up on the shore of Capo Verde in 1960. And lo and behold, this amazing new sound had... Um, had emerged and it was a total it was a total April Fool's joke he completely made it up but you know we we don't mind when the KLF do that we're perfectly happy so why not Joel a lot of hard rock and metal people have Mm. have delved into African and Middle Eastern music particularly Robert Plant Mm. you've done much delving yourself oh a little bit here and there Uh, I think I mentioned earlier when we were talking about Afrobeat my only real uh, sort of experience of that music has been when I interviewed fellow Kuti's son uh, Femi Kuti Mm. a few years ago um, who was an amazing person, full of vision for the continent. Um, we ended up not really talking about music, actually. We talked politics, as, as inevitably you would. Mm. Um, fantastic man. I walked away with my, my horizons expanded. Fantastic. Kate, if our listeners want to really get ahead of the game, which which country should they be investigating next? What's the next one? <laughs> I think it definitely has to be Somalia or perhaps mm. Sudan, actually. So Analog Africa, like I said, are reissuing these two albums by the Dirdo Band. And also Ostinato Records have just put out an incredible record of sort of um, almost psychedelic music coming from Sudan. It's like psychedelic Christian music. Psychedelic Christian music. <laughs> I'm in. I'm in. But what I found is I've played... I mean, this is not... You know, this is the, the wonderful thing of, like, something that you don't know a lot about where you can wander into it and this stuff was often made for cassette wasn't it it was made for it to be played not on the you know high-end equipment of any kind mm. but when you play it on things like the the Dali speakers the rubicons or something you get to hear things in there you get you are ushered into a completely different way of listening you know you're not you don't envisage a studio you don't envisage a live band you it, it's hard to know what you envisage but it's totally enveloping and absolutely fantastic what, what would be the uh, the first analog africa album that a listener should buy 
Uh, I really like the Afrobeat Airways uh, compilations that have come out on Analog Africa just because I think when we think of Afrobeat, we think of Fela Kuti and uh, actually there was so many other bands. There's a real rich kind of scene coming from, um, from there. And also I think the Analog Africa is really special because it goes some way to get out of this world, quote unquote world music box. You know, we yeah. think of music from Africa as being world music when really it's just music from a different place around music the world. from the world. It's music from the, the world. The world that we live in. <laughs> okay, we're coming towards the end of the show, which means it's time for our guests to nail their colours to the mast. What is the greatest single piece of production in the world of music? Joel McIver, what are you choosing? Well, I'm going for If You Leave Me Now by Chicago, uh, one of the cheesiest songs ever written. But it's so beautifully expansive. Uh, you know, the frequency range that it covers is amazing, right down from Peter Cetera bass uh, all the way up to the super high falsetto vocals in the chorus um, it's the most amazingly produced bit of music and, and it makes me laugh because it's so kind of saccharine as well but it's also I mean it was subsequently sampled by Lemon Jelly I think who kind of used that sort of very soft brass bit mm, as a recurring mm. thing yeah. and you realise that they more or less invented the orb very early. They more or less invented ambient house. And people yeah, say yeah. cheesy, but actually, if you come to it cold, you come to it sort of without any of the baggage, you kind of like, actually, this is an amazing piece of recording. It really is. It's very hard to come to it without that critical baggage, though. I remember it was used in the film Three Kings, starring Ice yeah. Cube, who is pictured in the film laughing at it because it's so different to his sort of own oeuvre. But it stands up anyway, you know. Ice Cube, you're wrong. Kate Hutchinson, <laughs> what are you choosing? <laughs> Well, I, I'm not even really a drum and bass fan, but when you posed this question to me, the first thing that came to my mind was Inner City Life by Goldie from the album Timeless in 1995. I, I heard it at, I heard him play at a worldwide festival this year. He closed his set with it. And it really is timeless. Um, the way that he made jungle cinematic, the way that it's frenetic and soulful at the same time. And I, I, like I said, I'm not really into drum and bass, but that track really gets me. Yeah, and it, actually that was when drum and bass, which was a kind of a homemade form of music, cheap computers, cheap samplers, do it on a laptop, was put in, was given the tools mm. of the full bore weapons grade international Star Destroyer grade studio. Yeah. And so, of course, he makes a 20 minute long track, doesn't he? And gets his money <laughs> worth out of it. <laughs> yeah, Although I don't think anybody would nominate the 59 minute orchestral track on uh, the second album, Saturn's Return. That was, <laughs> that was a long old Mother. haul. Mother. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, that's brought us to the end of the show. Um, thanks to Kate Hutchinson and Joel McIver for coming in. McIver and Hutchinson sounds like an excellent cop show, mm. which I think we would all watch. Um, you can read uh, both of their pieces in the new issue of Be There with Darley magazine. Get yours for free by going to facebook.com slash Darley loudspeakers. We'll be back in two weeks' time with another episode, so why not subscribe? Just search for Be There with Darley on your favourite podcast app or go to audioboom.com and search Be There with Darley for a direct download. Plus, we're on the Darley Facebook page as well. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Be There with Dali Loudspeakers was presented by Andrew Harrison and the studio producer was me, Jack Paramount. Be There is a Podmasters production.